0: We've reached week four of this six week series, New Year Same Promises, where we're unpacking some of the texts of Epiphany and understanding the revelation of God as He's revealed, as He's illuminated to us, as the light is shined on us to reveal who God is in His presence. And here's what we've gone through to get here we've r- listened to the words of Jesus, we've listened to the words of Paul and the promises of God that still stand, the promise of God's pursuit, as we learned, that God is continuing to pursue us, and as He pursues us, we pursue other people. And then week two, we talked about the promise of God's faithfulness and provision, that He is creating in us a faithfulness through His own faithfulness, that we desire to be faithful through Him last week we talked about God's promise of renewal, that God is renewing all things. And as we are invited into that renewal, we get to participate in the renewal of all things. And so the next three weeks we're going to be planted here in the fifth chapter of Matthew looking at those first uh, few teachings of Jesus in the teaching on the hillside or the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's Gospel is split into five main sections of teaching. The reason this is important, and I only bring this up because it's important, is because in the five sections of teaching, they are distinct in teaching because there are five books of the Torah, the uh, Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the five books of the Torah, And so as Matthew is trying to recreate the life of Jesus and prove to the Hebrews, the Israelites, who is here standing in front of him, Jesus has done these five separate teachings and they correspond to the five books of the Torah. And so five through seven is the first main teaching of Jesus. And in fact, what's great about this is what happens in Uh, what comes before chapter 5, which is chapter 4, as you can pretty well predict. He calls his disciples, he starts his ministry, and then what does he start to do in verses 23 through 25? He starts to proclaim the good news throughout Galilee region and Judea. He starts to heal the sick, and he starts to teach, and he does the things that he promises to do. And so 5 through 7 he starts to teach, and then chapters 8 and 9... He starts to heal. And so we get the promises of God here in these first chapters of this teaching. But this is a really important phrase. He went up the mountain. He went up a mountain. The issue with this is that Matthew, again, is trying to proclaim to the Israelites, to the Hebrews, to the Jews living in this century, this first century under Roman occupation, That Jesus is who he says he is, and this is the new way of living. Because Matthew is trying to depict Jesus as the new Moses. And so it's really important that we get the imagery correct of what's happening here. This image would be a very strong one, climbing the mountain, sitting to teach, and reveal God's instruction to the people sitting there. The word Torah, or Torah as we might say it, it means instruction. So not only is Jesus the new Moses, he's also the new Torah. He's also the new instruction. He's also the new way of going about this. Jesus is going to reveal God's instruction and God's life and plan for the people there in front of him. The people who are living with him, the people who have followed him up the mountain, the people that God wants to speak to. And Jesus is going to reveal God's promises to them. Here's my second issue. The section today is called the Beatitudes. That's what we traditionally know them as. Beatitude is a Latin word. Um, It comes from the Latin word Beate or "beati." Um, And that comes by way of basically the Catholic Church and the Latin rites and the Latin mass. And to work through what that word means is meaning being happy and rich and blessed, but it has the connotation of wealthy. Um, The word beatitude or uh, beauty or happy or rich or wealthy does not appear in the text at all. And so again, we're taking words that are not there and we're We're tacking them on there because this is what we've traditionally called them. I got this angry with the Lord's Prayer also. So just give me a second just to nerd out on these kind of things for a second. I like to call that the Disciples' Prayer, not the Lord's Prayer. We find the Lord's Prayer in John 17. This is Jesus teaching how you should pray. Um, This is now Jesus saying how to be blessed, except that's wrong. The way that we think of this, and sometimes people are pretty clever, and they might say, well, these are the B-attitudes. This is how we want your attitude to be in order to live a happy and blessed life. Whenever we hear the Beatitudes, we are struck with their poetic beauty and at the same time overwhelmed by their perceived impracticality for how we live in the world. We admire the instruction, but we fear the implications of actually putting the words into practice. Nobody wants to be meek. Nobody wants to be a peacemaker. Nobody wants to hunger and thirst for righteousness, especially in a modern world that will eat you alive. We live in a time when blessings given to those who are successful and often at the expense of others... To be poor in spirit, peaceful, merciful, and meek will get you nowhere in a culture that is grounded in competition and fear. Perhaps this is why most references to the Beatitudes imply that in giving this instruction, Jesus was literally turning the values of the world upside down. Now, we're not going to take a deep dive into each of the nine Beatitudes, I'm just going to give an overall idea, and we're going to seek to answer this question. Who can survive in attempting to live into the spirit of the Beatitudes? How do we take what Jesus is teaching here? How do we create it as the instruction for our lives and live into the spirit of it? The word Beatitude or blessing as Jesus, you are blessed, as he keeps saying, it's from the root word in the Greek, and it has a really large uh, dynamic, range. It's uh, makarios. Makarios is the Greek word there. And makarios could mean being fortunate or happy because of circumstances or being especially favored, blessed, fortunate, happy, privileged. And Jesus is continuing a great tradition of pronouncing blessing. And in the Hebrew word for blessing is... Asher, which we would know as the name Asher, Asher. So the choice of words is really important for us because there is a Greek word to mean privilege. There is a Greek word to mean favor. There is a Greek word to mean happy, and Jesus did not pick any of those words to use. And so there are two ways that a Hebrew speaker would understand the word blessed, The first one is wishing for God's favor on something, like saying, God bless you for doing this. God bless the people that work here in this building for cleaning our sidewalks this morning. I hope that God favors you. I hope that you feel happy and you are blessed because of what you have done for us and who you are. So God bless you, wishing for God's favor on something or somebody. The second way to understand blessing is an acknowledgement of your status. So it might be like an inheritance. You are blessed by virtue of who you are. We might say something like, um, blessed is the child of Bill and Melinda Gates, because they stand to inherit a large fortune. And so it's by virtue of who they are, their circumstances, that they are blessed And so in the New Testament, it overwhelmingly refers to the distinctive religious joy which a person can accrue from their share in the salvation of the kingdom of God. So it's that second way that Jesus is talking about it. It's not the first way. I hope that you are blessed. I hope that you can do these things to be blessed. Jesus is standing in front or sitting in front of these people and he's proclaiming that they are blessed because you are a part of the salvation of the kingdom of God. It is here and by virtue of who you are and who you believe in, you are God's and therefore you stand to gain an inheritance. But hear what Jesus is doing. He's pronouncing a blessing that already exists. He's saying something about the status of the people that are there in front of him that he's teaching. Because of his presence and the availability of the kingdom of the heaven given first to these people. And I use the phrase these people in the way that it's meant, kind of despairingly cast off, these people are there in front of Jesus. Jesus is blessing people who were not considered to be favored by the rest of power in Jerusalem. And so the surprise is that it's offered to these people first and not to the powers in Jerusalem. How could he dare give blessing or declare that these people were blessed when they are just these people? people ancient listeners to to the ancient listeners the announcement of a different basileia or a different kingdom would have been heard as an alternative to that of rome the kingdom of heaven denotes a whole new order of things brought about by the dawning reign of god He's offering this upside-down kingdom to them, to the ones who were not in power, who were not content, who were not satisfied, the ones who were angsty and angry and victimized and oppressed. These people were not finding relief in the remedies of traditional Judaism. They were dismissed by the Pharisees. And here were these people, those with seizures and severe pain, right? The fishermen and the day laborers and the subsistence farmers, And here is the King, Jesus, proclaiming all of these great promises of the Old Testament. For those of you that have space in your heart for God because of how terrible the world is, I've got good news. You are blessed in virtue of feeling that way. Jesus' pronouncement of God's favor on those who exist precariously on the underbelly of social and religious and economic power structures connects with Paul's statement about the wisdom of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-31, which also rests in God's choice of those whom the world viewed as foolish, weak, and despised. Listen to this. This is what Paul writes. By the way, to the people who are in the Corinthian church, this is a great way to start a church, is just to tell them this. God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise, and God chose what the world thinks weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, what is regarded as nothing, to set aside what is regarded as something. By the way, this is the church. This is the picture of God's people, the low and despised in the world, the weak and the foolish, to shame the strong and the wise. And Jesus is on that hillside and he's declaring to those people, you are not the best, you are not the brightest, but I've got good news for you. You are the kingdom of God you are already blessed because your Heavenly Father has seen you and He knows you and you belong to Him. Those who receive God's favor are not the privileged class of the Roman Empire or the Jewish establishment. They're not the money makers. They're not the people with political decisions The Beatitudes are spoken to those groups whom God deems worthy, not by virtue of their own achievements or status in society, but because God chooses to be on the side of the weak, the forgotten, the despised, the justice seekers, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for their beliefs. And so this is really important because... We can't treat the Beatitudes as a list of ethical ideas to try and climb to or emulate. We can't treat the Beatitudes as a checklist of things. Jesus is not saying, become like this if you want to get into heaven. That's works righteousness. That's not grace. That's not good news. It's not good news for Jesus to stand there and say, you have to become meek. He's not doing that here. These are good ideals, but he's not describing people that are sitting there listening. He's not randomly calling out blessings on people. He's saying, hey, you look meek, you are blessed. Hey, you have red hair, you are blessed. The people that are sitting there, this is not a call out. This is not a, uh, a blessing like an, an Oprah show. Everyone gets blessed here because of who, because you've joined me in this. Each one of these nine blessings is a specific callback to Old Testament scripture that all of his listeners would have been familiar with. These are not just random things that he's picking out of. The, thin air. the poor in spirit and those who mourn comes from Isaiah 61. And the context of Isaiah 61 is about the restoration of Israel and the return of Yahweh to Zion after exile. And those who mourn are not just people who are saddened or depressed. These are people who mourn over the state of Israel and the hope that's given in Isaiah is that ancient city will be rebuilt. The next two, meek and hunger and thirst for righteousness. These come from Psalm 37 and Psalm 107, which have to do with repossession of the land. It says the meek will inherit the earth, but the word for earth and land in Greek is the same word. Nobody wants to inherit the earth. Think of all that responsibility. The Jews, they were interested in inheriting the land, the promised land. The merciful is a reference to Hosea Six six, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, pure in heart we read we read this morning in psalm twenty four four and five the one who has clean hands and a pure heart will receive blessing from. The Lord. These are all hyperlinks back into the Scripture. This is Jesus standing there and opening the Scripture and reading them to people and saying, look at who is blessed. Look at who God through the ages has said you are blessed by virtue of who God is. It is good for you to hunger and thirst for righteousness because God does the same thing and he sees that and all of those promises will come to pass. The land will be yours. You will be redeemed. Everything will be renewed. God's promises are true. Now, grammatically speaking, the Beatitudes are in... what's called the indicative mood, which indicative is like a sign. It means evidence. It means description. So Jesus is using description words here and not imperative words, which is like essential or crucial or urgent. So he's describing the kingdom. He's describing who the kingdom includes. And he's not telling you, you must do these things in order to get into the kingdom. In other words, the Beatitudes are not direct calls to action to become poor in spirit, to mourn, to be meek, and so forth. Rather, the Beatitudes are promises that the unvalued are at last fully valued as human beings. The Beatitudes are not entrance requirements for the kingdom, but the promise of present and future blessings. Jesus is not asking the crowds to become poor in spirit or mourners or persecuted for righteousness' sake. Instead, he offers consolation to those who find themselves poor and in mourning and persecuted. Now, indirectly, obviously, the Beatitudes do imply that people who have responded positively to the coming of the realm will manifest the values and behaviors that are exemplified in the Beatitudes. Meaning, if you open yourself to God, if you see God revealed in your life, if you are a participant in the kingdom, you naturally become meek. You naturally thirst and hunger for righteousness. Naturally, you seek justice. Naturally, you mourn for the situation. Naturally, you become persecuted because of the things that you think and say and believe. It is our invitation into the kingdom and Jesus does not parse words and say if you enter into the kingdom if you are a part of this great plan if you are part of the one who God has called together it's not going to be an easy life you will do these things you will become meek but you don't have to get there first so the question we asked at the beginning how do we live into the spirit of the Beatitudes? If this is not a checklist, if this is not something that we can attain, if this is not something where we're coming alongside and saying, let me just do all of these things and then I will be blessed, my life will be fulfilled, I will have these riches, I will be an important person, I will have value. How then can we live in our modern world in the spirit of what Jesus is teaching? And many of the ethical passages of the later sermon in the rest of 5, 6, and 7 can be read as Jesus' intervention into the heated contemporary theological and political debate raging between the parties of his day, the zealots, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes. What course should God's people choose under these circumstances? How should they relate to their enemies? How should the people of God preserve their identity? Jesus' answer is prefaced and shaped by a unique perspective, and it's explained here. It's expressed. It's an example of the Beatitudes. The promises of God about God's reign in the world are about to be fulfilled. The promise is that the unvalued are fully valued as humans, and to be blessed means you are realizing the kingdom is yours to participate in. So I think there are three ways that we can live in this spirit that the Beatitudes are showing. And the first one is simplicity. Responding to Jesus' instruction. Simplicity has little to do with lack of sophistication. It has to do with hearing the words of God for what they are and not what we would prefer them to be. We might say that we're open to hearing his teaching for what it simply is, rather than layering it with our own prejudices and subjectivity. That would include the prejudice of already deciding that the task at hand is impossible. To approach the Beatitudes simply is to hear the words clearly, without prejudice, and to know that the words are spoken directly to us already as we are, not as something that we need to attain. We do receive more courage than fear when we hear Jesus saying, you are blessed in this life whenever you demonstrate humility, bring a peaceful presence, open your heart to others and show mercy on those who cry for it. Hearing Jesus' words simply spoken is the first principle for living into the spirit of the Beatitudes. And the second one is hopefulness. Now, there is little disagreement on the lack of hopelessness in our world. The distinguished theologian Jürgen Moltmann stated that the death knell of the church is when the overall attitude moves from anger to cynicism. Cynicism is different from anger. Cynicism has decided to accept whatever is regardless of the consequences. Cynicism does, offers little hope that things will get better. The mantra that a cynic usually uses is, do not worry about it. That is just the way things are. You will get used to it. And I got to tell you, the devil wants us to get used to it. As the church becomes cynical, as Christians become cynical, because we look at the world as the way it is and we say, don't worry about it, it's not going to get better. Jesus will come again someday and fix everything here, and I'll just go about my merry way. The Beatitudes invite us to do the opposite, which is to be full of hope. We place our hope on Christ who offered hope to the hopeless. Thus, we are able to approach the world with a spirit of hope, even when outward signs indicate otherwise. When we are hopeful, we stand in the world sure of the possibility that the day will come when mercy, humility, peace, and love are the descriptions of what it means to live. The third principle of beatitude living is compassion. Now, compassion literally means to suffer with. And it's not associated with either pity or sympathy. It goes deeper. To have pity on another person means that you feel sorry for them. Sympathy means that you understand what that person is experiencing, and so you offer some advice. The great late uh, Henri Nouan offers an insightful description of compassion. He says, compassion grows with the inner recognition that your neighbor shares your humanity with you. This partnership cuts through all walls which might have kept you separate. Across all barriers of land and language, wealth and poverty, knowledge and ignorance, we are One, created from the same dust, subject to the same laws, destined for the same end. We are distinct, but more importantly, we share that gift of being created in God's image. Thus, we belong to one another as family. Compassion requires not walking the same path with your companion, but walking in his or her Shoes. There's a beautiful phrase in Swahili, it's tukopamoja, and it's a phrase that they use quite a bit in greeting one another, in saying goodbye, in helping. It means we are together. It means a shared sense of purpose, of empathy and motivation within a group that transcends mere agreement. If you stop at the side of the road and help someone change his tire, he'll respond to you, Tuko Pamoja, we are together. Why did you do this for me? We are together. We are one. We are the same. We were made the same way. And we say it all the time. When we picked our name hyphen, it literally means together. We are together. Because Christ has made us that way. Because we have the same creator. We are made from the same dust. We are destined for the same end. And so as we find our place in the Beatitudes, as we live into that simplicity, that hopefulness, and that compassion for one another, Jesus is calling us to something that is different. He's reminding us that We are blessed, not because of what we've accomplished, not because of what we've done, but because of who God is. We are favored. We are fortunate. We are valued when so much of the world has called us unvalued. And I want us to read this in a different way to close this out as we move into communion now. Listen to what Eugene Peterson wrote in the message as he came across the Beatitudes. He writes it like this. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. And arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. This is what he said. You are blessed when you are at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You are blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you, get inside, when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that truth is too close for comfort, and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even, for though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble.